How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer because Scripture says that if we regard iniquity in our heart, the Lord will not hear us. Sin separates us from God in terms of our ongoing fellowship, but if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So that when we confess, which means simply to admit or acknowledge our sin, God instantly forgives us. We don't have to bargain with God. You know, a lot of people think they do. They'll say, God, I'm just never going to do this again. God says, well, you're going to do it 17,532 more times, so don't try to pull the wool over my eyes. Just admit or acknowledge it. That's all the Scripture says. And God will instantly cleanse you and forgive you and restore you to fellowship so that you can resume your spiritual uh, growth. Okay, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer before we begin. Then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, it's such a tremendous blessing we have to study your word, to take the time to really dig into your word, to investigate it, to study it, to see what is uh, being taught and try to understand uh, what you have for us to do and to think that we might live in a way that brings honor and glory to you. And Father, as we continue our study in Romans, it's important to understand that above all things, it is a, a book that explains and applies your, your character the character of your righteousness to our uh, condition as fallen sinners, the need for justification, and then the need for a justified sinner to be uh, to grow to spiritual maturity, to live in close relationship to God the Holy Spirit, that as we walk by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit will take the truth that we learn from your word and use it to build spiritual maturity and edification into our lives. Now, Father, we pray as we study and continue our study in Romans 9, 10, and 11 about how your righteousness relates to Israel, that we may come to understand this as a, as a vital truth, and as we come to understand your, the, the, the role you place and the significance you place upon Israel, both in history as well as in the present time and again in the future. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we are in Romans 10, and I will start off again with a little review. Covered a lot last time, had a couple of comments. Somebody said, well, you know, you went so fast. I was trying to figure out when I went slow. It's been 20 years or so. I don't go slow. Uh, here's the outline we went over. Begins with an introduction. Then in 118 to 320, the focus is on a condemnation of the, 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 uh, of unbelievers. First, the condemnation of Gentiles, the reprobate pagan Gentiles who are immersed in immorality. But immorality isn't the only expression of the sin nature. There's also the moral person. 
This is a person who thinks they can achieve righteousness on their own. Now, that theme comes back in Romans 10, because this is the problem specifically related to the Jews who were under the law, thinking that they could, through moral obedience, measure up to the righteous standard of God. And that has two aspects to it, measuring up to the righteousness of God in terms of God's, um, in terms of God's character in terms of justification, and then living out a life that measures up and reflects the righteousness of God in terms of what we call experiential righteousness or the righteousness related to the Christian life. Paul shows that Gentiles, pagan Gentiles, and moral Gentiles are condemned. The moral man is condemned. Uh, unfaithful Jews are condemned and because they're not truly faithful to the law, though they claim to be, they can't be 100% faithful. And so the conclusion that he reaches is that all are condemned. He states it succinctly at the beginning of the next section, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And as we studied, as we went through that, we saw that that phrase, glory of God, was often used as a, as a synonym to express the entire essence of God. We fall short of God's character, his righteousness. So we, the great need for man is to be justified, or, and justification means to be declared righteous. One of the sad things that we are experiencing in terms of the dumbing down of our culture due to problems in education is that the newer translations that are coming out uh, often do not use time-honored, theologically significant words in their translations, words like justification, reconciliation, propitiation, redemption. Uh, I remember one time when I was uh, in a class in seminary in the 80s. I was in the doctoral program, but I was sitting in on a THM class. And the professor asked the class, class of about maybe 150 students, and said, when was the last time any of you heard a sermon on Sunday morning on redemption or any other of the key elements of a primarily doctrinal sermon? And Nobody raised their hand. Nobody could think of it. This impoverishes the soul of the church. And so we have modern translations that in order to write at a fifth or sixth or seventh grade reading level, they change the vocabulary. So we lose these great words like justification and sanctification. If you use them in everyday conversation, people look at you like you've just grown a third eye right between the two you have and you're some strange person. Justification doesn't mean just as if I'd never sinned, which is a little trite uh, saying that a lot of people came up with to remember it. Justification means that God declares us judicially, judicially not guilty. It's a, declar- it's a judicial declaration because we are clothed, as it were, with the righteousness of Christ, God declares us not guilty. It's not that we haven't sinned, and it's not as if we hadn't sinned. It's that what what we're wearing is like a cloak of righteousness that's covering all of our sin and and all of our guilt. 
And that means it's not an issue anymore. The only issue is, do we have the righteousness of Christ? Our our fallen nature changes because of what happens in the baptism by the Holy Spirit. But we are still fallen sinners. We have a new life in Christ. We are declared righteous. But after that, we have to learn to live like a righteous person. That's called sanctification. Sorry, sanctification, the spiritual life. That is our spiritual growth. So justification is the focus of Romans 3.21 to 5.21. And then Paul begins to talk about the spiritual life. Now, this is important because Romans, if you want to understand what we're a tough passage we're getting into tonight, if you want to understand it, you have to think in terms of how Paul is very logically developing his, his argument in relation to the righteousness of God as we go through Romans. Because what happens is Paul stops talking about justification in 521, and he starts talking about the spiritual life. And then he starts talking about Israel in chapter 9, 10, and 11, and there's one mention of justification in one of the verses we're going to look at tonight in Romans 5, uh, 5, 9. But the issue that confuses people is he's not giving that as a, as a salvation verse, as a verse to get justified. So Romans 9 to 11 focuses on God's righteousness then in dealing with the corporate entity of Israel, and then the last four chapters relate to an application of God's righteousness to our everyday life. Okay, I pointed it out last time, just going to flash this up briefly. Romans 9, 1 to 11:36. here, he relates Israel to the righteousness of God. Israel's important all the way through Romans. That's the purpose of these of looking at it this way. This isn't saying that that's, that these sections are all about Israel and righteousness, but in every section, Paul says something about Israel and its relationship to the righteousness of God. In Romans 9 to 11, he demonstrates the righteousness of God in his rejection of national Israel because Israel has rejected God's prescription for how you achieve righteousness. Righteousness is by faith, not from works, and that's clear in the Old Testament. Romans 10 demonstrates that what happened is Israel, as a corporate entity, as a national entity, as an ethnic entity, basically rejected divine revelation in the Old Testament. That's what Romans 10 is about. Israel rejected divine revelation, and if they're going to be delivered by God historically, they're going to have to turn back to God's revelation. Romans 11 then answers the question, is God permanently cast away his people? And the answer is no. He still has a plan, and there will be a future restoration of Israel to the land. So we started with this last time, dealing with 10.1, my heart, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. And we did a study on the word group for salvation, sozo. Here it's the noun, soteria, translated salvation. The verb is sozo, to be saved, but it also means to be delivered, to be healed. It has a range of, of meanings. It means to be rescued from a predicament. And so you have to read the context 
to determine what it's being what you're being rescued from are you being rescued from physical illness then it has more the idea of healing if you're being rescued from national destruction then it has to do with physical deliverance if you're being rescued from the penalty of sin then it has to do with salvation uh in the sense that we normally think of it that is gaining eternal life so that we don't have to go to the lake of fire. There are three stages of salvation as the word is used in Scripture. And this is one of those great little tools that that I know. I learned it when I was probably in junior high or maybe elementary school. Uh, it's been laid out in the writings of numerous people like Lewis Berry Chafer and a number of others and it really helps to understand what the Scripture is teaching, especially as it comes to this word. There are three stages or three phases in the Christian life. The first phase takes place in an instant in time. It's called justification. At the instant that we put our faith in Jesus Christ, God imputes to us or credits to us his righteousness. And then because he, we, he now sees that we're covered with the righteousness of Christ, he declares us to be righteous. It doesn't change who we are. We're not transformed into a sinless person. It doesn't minimize our sin nature. It does, though, uh, take out the dominion of the sin nature. But that sin nature is just as nasty as it ever was if we let it. So, uh, And this is a problem. Some people think, oh, so-and-so can't be a Christian. Look at what they did. Some of the worst people I've ever met are Christians because they don't understand anything about the spiritual life, and they've turned their back on, on God, and they're just letting their sin nature run itself out. Uh, it's in, I was had a conversation the other day with someone, and we were talking about a sad situation uh, that we knew of where some folks who had been married for some time were going through a divorce. And I said, you know, the sad thing is they're two wonderful people, but they've just given up on, on Christianity. And nobody ever teaches people that, that when, you're, when you're falling in love with each other and if you're focused on the Lord, you're one kind of person. But when you start letting the sin nature control your life, you become another kind of person. And it's not good enough to make sure you're compatible when you're walking with the Lord. You better make sure you're compatible when your sin nature is in control. And everybody always looks at me real weird at that, but that's one of the most important principles in dating. Find out if your sin nature is compatible with the other person. Because if you both get out of fellowship, it's going to be horrible. And you've got to be able to survive that. So if your sin nature can't put up with their sin nature, you're not going to last very long. And that's just reality. Justification doesn't mean we're less of a sinner. It means that that it's Christ's righteousness that's the basis for our salvation, not what we do. Then we have a spiritual life. We're born again at the instant of salvation. That's distinct from justification. Justification declares us to be righteous, and at the same time, God imparts to us a new life. We are born again. We have a new spiritual life and spiritual capacity that wasn't there, but we're just like an undisciplined little bratty baby, and all we want to do is, is scream and, and dirty our diapers. 
And we have to grow up and mature and learn how to uh, take care of our own dirty diapers. That's the whole principle of confession of sin. And we have to grow up and we have to learn the basic principles, and that comes from following principles like 1 Peter 2.2, that we are commanded to earnestly to desire or to long for the sincere milk of of the word like a newborn babe that we may grow by it. And so that's the spiritual life. We need to learn how to grow. And then the third stage also takes place, somewhat of a surprise to us, when we're separated from this physical body and we are absent from the body and face-to-face with the Lord. Then and only then are we free from our sin nature. This is a glorification when we are face-to-face with the Lord. Now, the Scripture uses the word saved to describe each of these stages, and you can't confuse them. If you confuse them, then you will have problems. First of all, justification is sometimes referred to as being saved, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Simple term. Faith alone in Christ alone. In Romans 3, 4, and 5, saved isn't used that way justification is used that way for we're justified by faith justification is the more precise word than salvation but in american evangelicalism we always want to talk about the other are you saved when did you get saved and i pointed this out last time just for those who are new or just listening earl rodmacher used to always say i was saved yesterday i was saved this morning i was saved at lunch i was saved all afternoon and i'm going to be saved tonight and again tomorrow because he's using saved in this second sense of being saved from the power of sin related to our spiritual life we are working out our salvation with fear and trembling according to philippians chapter 2 So there's one sense in which saved means justification. It takes place in an instant in time. There's another sense in which salvation means uh, is related to our spiritual life and we're being saved from the power of sin. Phase one is we're saved from the penalty of sin, so now our destiny is heaven. Phase two is we're being saved from the power of sin so we can experience real life. And phase three is we're saved from the presence of sin, when we are absent from the body face-to-face with the Lord and the sin nature goes into the grave. Important to understand those things. Romans 10.1, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. Now, which one of these three is he talking about? Is he talking about that they'll be justified? Or is he talking about that they'll be sanctified, they'll have a spiritual life? Or is he talking about... Phase three, or is he sort of talking about all three? He's talking more about the end game, but you can't have the end game unless you have phase one and phase two. That's something that's not always emphasized in teaching this, is he's not talking to is about uh, his main idea here and the way he uses saved for Israel isn't just, is, he's not using it as a synonym for justification saved or sozo soteria, as I pointed out last time in our lengthy study of that word, is never used in Romans to refer to, as a synonym for justification. It's used primarily for the spiritual life or the end result of, of glorification. But you can't be one to, you can't be saved phase two if you haven't been justified phase one. 
That's the precondition. You don't have a spiritual life to be sanctified if you haven't been justified and regenerated to begin with. So that's assumed. But he's, the focus is on the last part, the completion of these stages of the spiritual life. So his prayer ultimately is for Israel to be saved. And as we're going to see in the context, and the context is so important here, you take the text out of context, you're just left with the con job. And that's what most people get. Uh, the salvation all through here is, as I'm going to show you, is related to the physical deliverance of Israel at the end of the tribulation period. When Jesus Christ returns at the second coming to rescue or deliver Israel from certain destruction at the hands of Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet, and then he restores them as a nation and establishes the kingdom. That is their salvation. And that's what Romans 10 is all about. It fits within the theme of Romans 9, 10, and 11. Has God forgotten about Israel? Has God given up and gone back on his promises to Abraham? No, he hasn't. Now, in Romans uh, 10.2, Paul presents the problem again. It's the same problem he presented back in chapter 2, dealing with the Israelites and their focus on works. It says, I bear them witness, or I testify, that they have a zeal for God. They are extremely religious. They, especially the, the observant ones that are in synagogue five times a day, praying seven times a day, uh, debating, sitting around studying and debating the minutia of the Torah and the Talmud day in and day out, not working. And this is true of the, uh, uh, of the, uh, Haredim. That's a term for the, uh, uh ultra Orthodox Jews. In, uh, in Israel, they, they don't work. This is a big problem in modern Israel today. They don't work. They don't serve in the army. They don't really support the uh, government of Israel because they don't believe there should be an Israeli state until the Messiah comes back. But they live, uh, they, they live off of the, uh, sort of the welfare state, uh, in Israel. And you have, uh, a, a number of different varieties of uh, of Haredim, and so they that's what they do. The men sit around all day long, and they just argue and debate the fine points of, of the Torah, and they put Christians to shame in terms of their deep, deep knowledge, not of the Word, but of the Talmud. But they've memorized a certain amount of Old Testament Scripture, especially from the Torah, but they do what a lot of Christians are starting to do. They can just tell you what everybody says about it, but they can't really tell you what the text means. We've gotten that way. I was I was saying that saw this when I was in seminary. People sit around. They talk about what Calvin said, what Luther said, what uh, John MacArthur said, what Chuck Swindoll said, what so and so said, what J. Vernon McGee said, or Ryrie said, or Chafer said, and then go on and on and on. But can they tell you what the Bible says? And it was interesting. I was talking with my friend Tommy Ice the other day, and, and Tommy said said it's so different in seminary today at, at at Dallas because when we were students there you'd go around you'd ask people what do you want to do when you get out of the, out, out of seminary i want to teach the bible nowadays that you don't get that answer you get a variety of other answers but that's not their prime purpose for going to a seminary anymore what you have in the jewish community is a zeal for god and a passion for the torah a passion for talmud 
but it's not according to knowledge. And the Greek word for knowledge here is epinosis, which means a full knowledge. Gnosis means you, you know the facts, like Jack Webb in the old Dragnet series, just the facts, ma'am. You know data. Uh, but epinosis is where you've assimilated that data into your soul because you understand it spiritually and, and you believe it as the, as the word of God. Now, it's not, their, their, their passion for God is not according to true, full knowledge of the scriptures. And then we have an explanation, that first word there. Those of you who are uh, coming on Sunday night or watching on the Bible study methods class, some of the most important words that we have in Bible study are those little connective particles, we call them in grammar, that begin each sentence. So uh, what we have in verse 1 is the, is the, uh, <clears throat> the, the statement that, that Paul makes that the Jews are, uh, that, that my heart's desire and prayer, for, uh, prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. Then the first word in verse 2 is for. This is an explanation He's explaining why he is praying that they might be saved. Why does he need to pray that the Jews will be saved? The Jews think they're automatically going to go to heaven because either A, they're the descendants of Abraham, and so they get there on Abraham's coattails, or B, because they're, they're more righteous than the Gentiles because they have Torah, because they've studied Torah, because they observe the Shabbat and all of these other things. So that the verse 2 is an explanation. Why is he praying for their salvation? Because they need it. They have a zeal for God, but don't be, don't be confused by this, this passion that's not according to knowledge. And then he has an additional explanation in verse 3. Again, it begins with that word for. They being ignorant, they are without knowledge. It's not only not according to knowledge, but is it lacks knowledge. They being ignorant of God's righteousness. They don't understand the dynamics of God's righteousness. Now, if you ask them, is God righteous? They'll say yes. But their knowledge, they, they've rejected the, 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 what the Old Testament taught about righteousness. Now, this gets into something. I had a conversation today with a guy I know. He's a professor at Dallas Seminary. He's a free grace guy for the most part. But it was interesting. I, I kept my mouth shut because I was trying to probe him for some information on some, uh, some, uh, some other things. And so he was just, I was just letting him talk. But it was, it was interesting because he said, you know, he, he's part of this group. He's not as bad as many, uh, but he's part of this group. How much did those people in the Old Testament really understand? Now, he's better than most. He thinks they understood a whole lot. In fact, one comment he made, I thought, well, you know, I hadn't really thought about that before. Uh, and that is that, um, you know, the, the, the whole statement about uh, when Abraham, we'll look at a minute in Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him, it was accounted to him as, as righteousness. And the New Testaments, and in the New Testament, the Gospels in Luke, uh, or excuse me, in John, uh, John chapter 8, Jesus said, Abraham longed to see my day. Now think about it. You know, there are a lot of people who get very concerned about, well, just what or how much did the Jews need to understand or what did they need to believe in the Old Testament in order to be saved? 
And the answer that some people give is that, well, they just need to, to believe in God. Others make it a little more precise, and they, need, they, they say they need to believe in God's promise of a Messiah. But if you go back and look at the text, the, as I've stated many times, the text, the promise is of, of the seed, which is the Messiah, the promise of the seed who will be the deliverer of the people from their sin. And so there's a clear gospel there. Abraham longed to see Jesus' day. That's what Jesus said. Hebrews 11 also talks about the fact that some of these Old Testament saints seem to know a lot more about God's future plan than we would get just from reading Genesis or Exodus or or, or, or Samuel. They, they seem to have a, a greater level of revelation than is indicated in, in the text. So they had a clear understanding of righteousness. But then this guy said, but they didn't really understand righteousness. And they didn't understand the deity of the Messiah. And I thought, okay, I'm not going to go there. Um, they did. And I, and I hit this last time, and I hit it really fast. And I had at least one person say that they needed me to sort of go over that again. It's so important to understand this concept of righteousness from the Old Testament. Number one, Isaiah made it very clear that human righteousness is worthless. He uses very graphic imagery here to portray how polluted and how disgusting our righteousness is. Not our unrighteousness, but our righteousness, the best that we can do. All our righteousness is like an unclean garment, Isaiah 64, 5. So if our righteousness is worthless then where do we get it? How do we get it? We can't produce it on our own. Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned or imputed to him as righteousness. It's based on faith. Now, I believe that the tense of the verb in the Hebrew here for believed it indicates something that had already happened in the past. It's a verb shift in the Hebrew from the verses preceding it, and it indicates that, that almost a parenthetical statement. And Moses, in his narrative, he'll tell you this happened, this happened, this happened, and then he inserts a divinely inspired point of application or an editorial. And you have to read the text carefully to get that. Otherwise, you think that it's, it's a straight flow of the story. And that's how some people read Genesis 15:6. But Genesis 15:6 is a is just the the writer Moses informing the readers. Now, don't forget this point as we go on with the story, and that is that Abraham had already believed God long before Genesis 12. He's not just getting around to believing God and being declared righteous in Genesis 15. He had already been declared righteous before Genesis 12. And so uh, Moses is reminding his readers that, that Abraham had already believed God and God had it imputed that or reckoned that or credited that to his account as righteousness before God ever called him to leave Ur the Chaldees and to go to, uh, and to go to, <clears throat> and to go to this new land that God was going to give him. Uh, it's, it's interesting that, uh, Ur of the Chaldees was excavated just after World War I by a man named, uh, Sir Charles, uh, uh, Woolsey. And he had another claim to fame, 
and that is that he had excavated Carchemish. We've spoken about the Battle of Carchemish. Carchemish was on the Orontes River up in Syria, in northern Syria, and today that site of Carchemish is right on the border of Syria and Turkey. Anybody want to go work there? That is a hot spot, but it's been a hot spot. Literally one-third of the site of ancient Carchemish is located in Syria, and two-thirds is located in Turkey. It was excavated by uh, Wolsey before World War I, and his assistant was a guy by the name of T.E. Lawrence, Lawrence of Arabia. And, and that was his number one, number one assistant. Uh, I think Wolsey was like 34 and Lawrence was like 28. And that was just before World War I. And, of course, most people don't realize that about Lawrence, but he was a... Uh, he, he, he was a noted archaeologist prior to his uh, claim to fame from, from the period of, of World War I. Carchemish never got worked again because of all the fighting and everything that's been going on since the end of World War I all the way up until 2011. And a team went in and worked for six months, and then, of course, all this uh, rebellion in Syria broke out, and it hasn't been worked since. So for 90 years, basically, it hasn't been worked since Lawrence worked it before uh, World War World War One, but that was uh, that that Carchemish up there on the Orontes was not far from Haran, which is where Abraham stops on his way. He left Ur, which Wolsey later um, was the uh, chief archaeologist in, and then Abraham goes north, and he's trusting God along the way. But that's not his justification. That's part of his spiritual life. How did he get righteousness? It was credited to him because he believed God, not because of what he did. Did And this is Paul's whole argument in Romans 4 and in Galatians 3. Abraham couldn't get righteousness from the law because the law is not given for another 400 years. So the, so the law was not the basis for becoming or getting righteousness. It's faith in God, and that's it. It's not based on works. Now, where righteousness comes back to play is, in again, in Isaiah uh, 53. I pointed this out last time. You read through that, and it's a story of the suffering servant who's going to come, and he will die as a substitute, pay the penalty for his people. Uh, <clears throat> he endures, Isaiah 53, 4, it's our sickness he was bearing, our suffering he endured, um, we account him plagues smitten afflicted by God, but he was wounded because of our sins. This is the whole imagery of substitution, and he's crushed because of our iniquities. Uh, and, and then we're all sinners. This is a problem in Judaism. You don't need righteousness if you're not born totally depraved. And in modern Judaism, in rabbinic Judaism, you're not born totally depraved. You may sin, but there's not a doctrine of total depravity or original sin in modern Judaism. And as a result of that, if you're, if you're not inherently bad, then you can be reformed and you can do good. But the Bible says clearly, if Isaiah says all of our works of righteousness are as filthy rags and we all went astray, and he's talking about himself, one of the greatest prophets of the Old Testament, and he says we all went astray, like sheep, each going his own way, and the Lord visited upon him the guilt of all of us. So a clear doctrine of universal human guilt in Isaiah 53.6. goes on later in Isaiah 
5312, that he's numbered among the sinners. Again, substitutionary. He bore the guilt of many. And then finally in Isaiah 5311, he says, My righteous servant. Only the servant is righteous. He's righteous because he is inherently righteous. Because the servant is the incarnate servant, the Son of God, the child from back in Isaiah 714, Emmanuel, born of a virgin, the one who in Isaiah 96 is called uh, uh, a mighty God, uh, the one who is called the father of eternity, the, fa- the one who is called a wonderful counselor. All these terms apply to deity. He's the one who is born like as a human. And so what does the righteous servant do in verse 5311? He makes the many righteous. He, they can't do it themselves. They have to be given that righteousness. Now, all of this is important to understand this next verse. Righteousness in the Old Testament points, to, it comes from believing a promise of God, the promise of the seed. The promise of God is that he's, that the seed of the woman will defeat the seed of the serpent. That's the first indication in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And then we go through all those messianic prophecies in the Old Testament that tell us that he's going to be a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's going to be a descendant from the, from the tribe of Judah. He is going to be born in Bethlehem. He's going to be born of a virgin. He's going to... Uh, suffer, he's going to die, he's going to be the one through whom God makes his people righteous. And Paul says in Romans 10.4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now this is a much more difficult verse to understand than what meets the eye. I would guess that most of us would look at that and at first blush we would say what a certain number you know in the modern among modern commentaries this is a predominant view I don't think it's right but it's a predominant view and some of you are going to go <gasps> I can't believe you said that no I don't think this is right and that is we read it for Christ ended the law it's not a verb it doesn't say Christ ended the law other passages say Christ ended the law That's not what this verse is talking about. It's saying Christ is the end of the law. And the word there in the Greek that's translated end is the word telos. Now, it's interesting how in the last few weeks I've had to do a lot of additional work on this particular word because a form of this word, telios, has an epsilon iota or ei in there uh, between the l and the o, is the one that's translated perfect in 1 Corinthians 13.10, that when the perfect comes, that which is partial shall be done away with. And so we, there's a, a lot of discussion on this particular word and a lot of research, and every few years I go back and reevaluate and rethink and read a lot of new stuff on this. And so this is the word telos. And this word, the reason it's debated is because it has a wide range of meanings. Now, a word that has a wide range of meanings, if a word can mean one of ten things, doesn't mean you go eeny, meeny, miny, moe, and pick the one that you like. What it means is you've got to pay a lot more attention to context and the development of the writer's argument so that you don't assign the wrong meaning and misunderstand a passage. 
which commonly happens in in a lot of things, not to mention, uh, you know, politics in Washington, D.C., or uh, understanding the scriptures. Christ is the end of the law. Now, there's basically three major senses to this word telos that I've listed there. Fulfillment is one. Christ is the fulfillment of the law. He fulfills the law. Second is he's the goal of the law. The law points to Christ. Now, a lot of people say, well, it's both of those together is the main sense here. The one that's that probably is a sense that many of you have heard before is that Christ is the termination, uh, termination of the law. And that's true. Christ certainly indeed uh, does terminate the law. Uh, and that's stated in uh, any number of passages, but that's not the thrust here. The thrust here has to do more with this idea of Christ being the either the fulfillment or the goal of the law. The law was, Galatians says, the law was a pedagogue, a tutor to lead us to Christ. So that makes a little more sense. I'll show you a couple of verses on that in just a second, but uh, first of all, let's look at this context. Notice how when I switched slides, 10.4 went from the top to the bottom so that we could pick up and be reminded of verse 3. For they, that is the Jews, being ignorant of God's righteousness, seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. What do you think is the main concept in verse 3? It's the law of repetition. You see one word used three times, and that's the word righteousness. The problem is that one group is ignorant of God's righteousness, so they don't understand the integrity of God and the high standard of God's righteousness. So that, that's a reference to the, to, to the Jewish thought, Second Temple period uh, rabbinical theology. One of the things I've always noticed in, in the, theological systems is that the less of a sinner people are, the less grace God has to give, the less righteous God is. There, there's a correlation there. It's just like if you think that you can do something to lose your salvation, somewhere buried in your thinking is an idea that you do something to get your salvation. But if you don't do anything to gain your salvation, you can't do anything to lose it because it was a free gift. Now, the same idea is here. Is if you have a lower view of the righteousness of God, if some, somehow it's diluted, then man becomes a little bit better. I mean, if God's standard isn't an unreachable standard that's 100 miles up and I can't ever jump up and touch it, then, then that means that there's, the only way I'll ever get there is if somebody takes me there. But if God's standard is seven feet off the ground, then I just might be able to jump high enough to, to, to get there. So the, the, the lower that standard is, the easier it is for human beings to, to achieve it. So if, you're, if you minimize the righteousness of God and change that meaning, and remember last time I pointed out that the Hebrew word here is tzedakah, and in Second Temple Judaism, the term tzedakah began to shift from the main idea of a righteous absolute standard to the idea of doing works of charity. 
And that really changes things. One example that that I ran into years ago when I first going, started going over to uh, Russian-speaking areas in the former Soviet Union, everybody over there uses a, a pretty old, it's like the King James Version, it's an old uh, Russian translation of the, of, the new, of the Bible called the Russian Synodal Text. In the New Testament, the word dikaiosune, the word for righteousness, is consistently translated with the Russian word pravda. You've heard of pravda before because that's the name of the main uh, <coughs> newspaper in Moscow, and that means truth. But if you read a passage like this, and so be, they being ignorant of God's truth and seeking to establish their own truth have not submitted to the truth of God. It totally changes the, the, what the sentence is saying. So if you have a misconception of what righteousness is and you're defining it as works of charity, then you're going to change your whole... That's going to uh, ping-pong all the way through your, your, your theology and, and, and change everything so it doesn't conform to the text anymore. You're, you, you basically go way off kilter. So they're ignorant of God's righteousness... They're seeking to establish their own righteousness. Now, when you deny the absolute standard of God and, and you're seeking your own standard, what have you done? You're substituting your standard for God's standard. And that's what righteousness is. It's the standard of God's character. And so they're seeking to establish their own standard instead of following God's standard. They, they, they just don't want to, perfection. We can't live up to perfection, so let's change it and bring it down to something uh, we can do. So by seeking to establish their own standard, what have they done? They've rebelled and rejected what God has said in the Scriptures, and they're substituting their own. That's why Paul says in the next line, they haven't submitted to the righteousness of God. They're in rebellion, they're in spiritual rebellion. They have rejected what God has said, and they're manufacturing their own religious system as a substitute. But it, in Judaism, it's a profound system because they're spending all their time talking about the Old Testament, but they come up with some of the most unusual ways to interpret the Scripture. And you get into numerology, and you get into all kinds of hidden codes and mystical things and things of that nature, so it changes up how you interpret the Scripture. So on the one hand, we have the, the Jews who are ignorant of God's righteousness, and they've rebelled against God's righteousness. And then Paul gives another explanation, verse 4, for Christ is the end of the law. See, he's not saying Christ ended the law. He says that other places. But what he is saying is Christ is the focal point of the law. And as we'll see from the verses he's quoting from the law, these verses are all talking about the, the post-salvation life of the believer in Israel. They're not talking about how the Jews were to get saved. These passages are coming out of Deuteronomy, and they're talking about how the redeemed nation is supposed to live to experience the full blessing of God. In other words, these passages aren't talking about phase one experience in Israel. They're talking about a phase two experience in Israel, the spiritual life which fits the context of Romans because this part of Romans has left the phase one justification discussion behind at the end of chapter 5. 
Then we went on to the spiritual life, and from there we're talking about the righteousness of God, and we're talking about his prayer for the Jews that they be saved, and that's not talking about being justified. It would include that. It's talking about much more experiencing the fullness of their salvation. Jesus said, I didn't come like a thief to steal and destroy. I came to give life. That's it. Phase one, when we trust in Jesus, and to give life abundantly, that's phase two. That's the spiritual life. It's it's two separate issues. One is how to get to heaven. The other is how to live now that you're a citizen of heaven. So Christ is the end of the law. The law points to Christ And his life, because in his life he set the precedent for the spiritual life in the church age. He's the model. He's the paradigm. He's the rubric for uh, how to live the Christian life in this age. He's the end of the law for righteousness. And this phrase, for righteousness or unto righteousness, is the same preposition construction we're going to see when we get into Romans 10, 9, and 10. And that's the goal. So Jesus is the goal. The, the law in the Old Testament points to him. <clears throat> and as that, he is the end or the, the, the fulfillment of the law unto righteousness. He's the pattern to everyone who believes. Now, are we talking about justification belief here? Or are we talking about sanctification belief here? Just think a little bit. That's why I spent so much time going through phase one, phase two, phase three. Some of your eyes were glazing over because you've heard it so many times. But now it's a pop quiz. That's why it's important. He's not talking about how to get righteousness. He's talking about how to live now that you are righteous. That that experiential righteousness that comes that's supposed to characterize our life after salvation, not the forensic or justified righteousness that we got as salvation. Now, when I say Christ is the end of the law, this is clear from a number of passages in Scripture, like Matthew five seventeen, Jesus said, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. That fits the idea that he is the focal point, the end game in terms of what the... the Old Testament is pointing to. Romans 13.10, love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Now the purpose, First uh, Timothy 1.5, now the purpose of the commandment, the law, is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith. Okay, now we're going to go to the next verse. We may not get to Romans 10.9 and 10 tonight, but it's it's a slow setup because I would guess that so many of you have always heard that if we believe in our heart and confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, we'll be saved. And you think that's talking about how to get to heaven. And what I'm pointing out to you and what I'm going to show you by very careful study of the verbiage and how it's used in Romans and how it's used in the New Testament is this verse doesn't have anything to do with how to get to heaven. If it did, it's teaching a work salvation that you have to believe and do something with your mouth. And that's not what it's talking about. doesn't fit anything in, in Romans at all. Okay, verse 5. For P- Moses writes about the righteousness which is from the source of the law. Interesting verse. He's going to quote from Leviticus 18.5. Leviticus 18.5 says, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. Let's turn for a minute to Leviticus 18. We're going to 
float around Leviticus and Deuteronomy a little bit, so it's not going to hurt you to leave Romans for a second and see if you can get those pages in Leviticus and Deuteronomy to separate. Deuteronomy, I mean Leviticus 18.5. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, So who's speaking? Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel. He's speaking to Moses, the greatest prophet of the Old Testament. And he says, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. They are already in a covenant relationship with God. They're already, for the most part, as we've studied before, the exodus, even the, as, as reprobate as they became later on, as rebellious as they became later on, the uh, exodus generation is viewed as a saved generation. They believed God again and again and again. Their places stayed. They believed God. They turned around the next day, unlike you and, you and I, they turn around the next day and forget everything and disobey God. But in this passage, God tells them, remember, I'm the Lord your God. According to the, And then he reminds them where they came from. According to the doings of the land of Egypt. We might say, remember before you were a Christian and you lived just like all the reprobates and pagans around you? That would be the comparison. According to the doings of the land of Egypt, where you dwelt, you shall not do. In other words, don't live like the pagans who lived around you lived back when you were living in Egypt. And according to the doings of the land of Canaan, where I am bringing you, you shall not do. Okay, I'm taking you to a new neighborhood, and they've got a different way of living, but it's just as pagan. Don't follow their practices either. Nor shall you walk in their ordinances. Don't follow their customs. Don't follow their laws. I'm giving you a separate and distinct set of standards for how you should live. Verse 4. You shall observe my judgments and keep my ordinances to walk in them. Whenever we see the word walk, walk is a process. Walk isn't how to get saved. Walk is what you do after you're saved. You walk by means of the Spirit. You walk in the light. You walk in the truth. You abide in Christ. These are all uh, descriptions of the Christian life phase two. You shall walk in them. I am the Lord your God. Then we come to verse 5. This is a verse that Paul's quoting in Romans 10. Uh, 10, uh, 5. You shall observe my judgments and keep my ordinances to walk in them. I'm the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. Now, some people take verse 5 here in Romans 10 that Paul is talking sort of hypo- hypothetically that that if a man could do these things, he would live by them. That's not what the original context is saying. The original context is God is saying, okay, I've saved you and redeemed you out from slavery in Egypt, and I'm bringing you to a new land, and I'm giving you a new set of standards for how you're going to live your life. If you live like the pagans around you, you're going to destroy your life, and you're going to self-destruct. But if you live according to my standards and my principles, you're going to experience blessing and riches in life. He's talking about their life after salvation. He's not talking about how they should get justified and go to heaven. He's talking about now that you are my people, this is how you live. 
the Mosaic Law and the Ten Commandments didn't have anything to do with how you became the people of God. It had to do with how the people of God are supposed to live once they become the people of God. So Leviticus 18 isn't talking about getting justified because you can't get justified by the law. Galatians 3.21 says, Is the law then against the promise of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given, which could have given life. See, here he's being hypothetical. If a law was given, which could have given life, truly righteousness. Now, here he's not talking about experiential righteousness. He's talking about uh, justification or forensic righteousness. Uh, If... Uh, truly righteousness would have been by the source of the law if a law could have been given which would have given life. But it can't. No law can give justification so that you're born into a new life. Philippians 3, nine and be found in him. This is Paul saying, and I hope to be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law. You can be moral or immoral. That's not the issue in salvation. The issue in salvation isn't what kind of righteousness do you have, but are, do you have you received the imputation of Christ's righteousness? Do you have your righteousness, good, bad, or indifferent, or do you have Christ's righteousness? If you have Christ's righteousness, then you're going into heaven because you're saved not by your righteousness but by Christ. So Paul says it's not having my own righteousness, which is from the law. Greek preposition is ek, indicating coming from the source of, of, of the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. So in Romans 10.6, Paul says, but the righteousness which comes by faith speaks in this way. And then we get into a... a, a we're going to have to stop here. We're going to get into a, a, a quote from, uh, from Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses uh, uh, 12 to 14, and we have to build a chart and show what is going on here. What, where am I going with this? Because you need to understand a little bit about what the conclusion is going to be. The conclusion is that in verses 6, 7, and 8, the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? You know, I need to go to heaven to find God's word. Or I need to go into the abyss, verse 7, to find God's word. But what is what does Deuteronomy say? Deuteronomy says the word is near you. As, as Jews, God has revealed his word. The Jewish people are the custodians of the word of God from the time of Abraham on. Every book, but possibly the book of, uh, probably the book of Job in the Old Testament was written by a by a Jew. The Jews were the custodians of the revelation of God. It was available to them. They don't have to say, well, I have to go all the way to heaven to get it, or I have to go into the abyss to get it, but it's near you. It's in your word and in your heart. So it's it. they need to be obedient to the word. And then in verse 9, if you confess with your mouth, which means to admit or acknowledge the Lord Jesus, that he's the Messiah... So that's the first thing he's talking about. He's he's not talking about um, he's not talking about a justification here. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now that's not talking about justification, but it's talking about phase two and phase three, which is a spiritual life and fully realizing all the blessings of justification. 
then this verse isn't telling you what do you need to do to be saved. It's telling you how you need to live after you're saved. But it has a specific Jewish application. Verse 10 is the explanation. It says, with the heart, that is the soul, the mind, one believes, and the result is faith alone in Christ alone. You trust in Christ, and you get the imputation of righteousness. And that's that's what you need for, for justification. That's our one mention of justification. And with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. It's made unto salvation so that when you confess, and there's a parallel with confession because there's going to be a, another statement from Joel 2 in verse 13, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Calling upon the name of the Lord is parallel in context. This is what I'll show is parallel in context with confession. And the issue with the Jews is they had rejected Jesus. And now they have to call upon Jesus. Jesus said, I, at the end of Matthew chapter, chapter 23, he said, I am not coming back until you call upon the name of the Lord. So until the, the Jewish nation calls upon the name of the Lord, Jesus isn't going to return as their Messiah. And that's what Paul's talking about. God still has a plan, but they have to quit rejecting the revelation that, that I've been giving them, and they have to turn to me, and they not only have to believe Jesus died on the cross for their sins so that they have personal righteousness, but they have to confess me before men. They have to call upon me to come and deliver them, and then I will rescue them, that's what verse 13 is talking about. That is the same thing that that verse that Paul will use at the end of chapter 11 when he says in this manner all Israel will be saved when they call upon the name of the Lord. So it all ties together in a nice, neat little package. Okay, we'll come back next time because we have to look at these verses, but not only Romans 10, 7, and 8, but then we have to put them together. This is why I didn't want to go into this tonight is because we have to sort of compare the Old Testament, New Testament passages so we properly understand what Paul is saying and what he's not saying. Let's bow our heads and go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for this time to study your word, to be reminded of your grace that our salvation is not dependent upon who we are, what we do. Our salvation is dependent upon what Jesus Christ did on the cross, that he died for our sins, paid the penalty as our substitute, so that all that is needed is for us to accept that, to believe in that. And once we trust in him at that instant, we're declared just because we've received the free gift of the imputation of righteousness. Our righteousness is not from the law. It's not from us. It's from Christ. And on the basis of his righteousness, we have eternal life. And, Father, then we have to learn how to live that life. And we pray that we might be challenged from these verses that we're not too different from the Jewish nation. If we want to have real life, if we want to really experience the blessings that you have for us in life, then what that means is that we need to learn to walk in obedience and we need to learn how to uh, live a life that is where God the Holy Spirit is producing righteousness in us, that, and that glorifies you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.